You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so let's, uh, let's jump right in. And here's what we're going to do. We've done this the last few weeks. Um, we're just going to kind of walk verse by verse through the text this morning, and then we're going to try to draw out of it what it is that Paul's trying to explain. Because what, what's happening here in 1 Corinthians, and, and one of the reasons that 1 Corinthians gives people a lot of headaches is that there's so much, there's so much that has to do with the contextual reality of the day, meaning there are cultural customs, there are cultural realities that Paul is speaking into that for us are completely foreign because we don't inhabit that time or that culture. And so what we're going to do again is we're just going to kind of walk through and try to glean what it is that's happening in that time so that we might understand what Paul might want for us and more importantly what God speaking through Paul, might want for us in our day, in our time. So let's start in verse 17. He says this, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now remember, at the beginning of chapter 11, Paul commended them, right? He said, I commend you for keeping the traditions as I delivered them to you. So, so again, this is said in that context, right? Paul, is, Paul has honored the Corinthians. And yet, there are things within the practice of the church at Corinth that can and should and need to be corrected. And brothers and sisters, the same can be true of us. It can be said um, that we are Christians. It can be said that we are beneficiaries of God's grace, that we're in the Lord's favor, and yet that there are ways in which we knowingly or unknowingly practice our faith that might actually work against the fellowship that God intends to create among us. And so... Let's read this in that spirit. So he says this in verse 18. He says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, a couple things happening here. One, Paul assumes that within this body of people, there are those who are genuine. There are those whom the Lord has extended His grace to. There are those who have called upon the name of Christ for salvation and who are living in light of that reality. And there are those who are not genuine. Those who are not, in fact, followers of Jesus. And so this whole thing is somewhat, somewhat messy in light of that, right? But beyond that, he goes on to say that these divisions are there so that in the divisions, the genuineness of the people, the actual Christians in the church in Corinth might bubble to the surface, that we might, we might come to know and see those who have truly called upon Christ's name for salvation. That it's through those divisions that genuineness, that's what it, that what is true, will be revealed. And so, brothers and sisters, as we enter into something that, that for us might seem somewhat unimportant, right? Meaning the way that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We might think that we have all of our proverbial T's crossed and I's dotted. Brothers and sisters, it is important that we walk carefully with regards to both our hearts and our doctrine because it is in these opportunities to divide that the Lord, that the Lord says, our genuineness will be proved. And so, brothers and sisters, our doctrine, the way we think, the way we align ourselves to the words of Jesus, to the words of the Scriptures, matter. 
even in things that for us might initially seem less important. But it's our genuineness that's at stake here, which is why Paul is going to write so forcefully. And so what's the issue that's at hand in this particular part of 1 Corinthians where he, he says this in verse 20. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. That's important. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another one gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So what does Paul say? Paul, again, assumes that there is traditions that they should be living according to, right? Traditions that he has passed on, and one of those is the Lord's Supper. And the way that the Lord's Supper is being practiced in Corinth is being practiced in such a way that it has actually completely subjugated, completely subdued, completely done away with the supper as a whole, right? Paul says, look, you might be practicing what you think is the Lord's Supper, but the way in which you engage with that act negates it entirely. When you come together, what you eat is not the Lord's Supper. That should be a big, big red flag. So what's supposed to be happening here, right? Because that's what Paul is assuming. And I think uh, one of the things that's also difficult about 1 Corinthians is that he's writing in response to, to abuses. So he's dealing with, again, certain problems. So he's maybe not casting the vision for what the Lord's Supper should look like, but rather he's responding, right, to ways in which the Lord's Supper has been perverted. But so what is it that's supposed to be happening here, Right? The Corinthians are supposed to be sharing this meal together that is in some ways symbolic and mysterious and a proclamation of God's glory through the work of His Son in having His body broken, His blood shed, so that a new covenant might be initiated, so that God might relate to people in a new way, no longer through the law, but in the Spirit through the broken flesh and the shed blood of Jesus. That's the meal that they're supposed to be sharing. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, just a few short chapters ago, Paul said this, right? He said that we are one body. We are one church. Why? Because we partake of one bread, one loaf, one meal. And so Paul's saying, look, there's this wondrous unifying, catalytic, glorious moment that should be taking place every time that you gather together corporately as a church that you guys are in fact not experiencing. Why is that? Well, in the church in Corinth, this glorious meal that the church was supposed to share together is looking less and less like God intended it to look. In fact, what we would know if we, you know, happen to be students of Greco-Roman festal tradition, which I'm assuming most of us aren't, What we would come to find out is that what Paul describes as happening here in these few verses looks a whole lot like a Greco-Roman house party. Let me explain. In that time, 
a house party was often, was often thrown um, by a well-to-do family, right? And they would invite guests, and those guests would be divided based on their wealth and based on their social status. The, the dining room uh, was typically a, a little bit larger than ours, right? So it would hold 10, somewhere between 10 and 20 people. And, and if you were not only invited to the party, but if you were invited to that section, that seating arrangement, that table, the table in the formal dining room, well, you were, you were wealthy, you were, you were well-known, you had, you had this sort of social clout that you brought with you, you were an honored guest. And as an honored guest, you would be given the best food and you would be given the best to drink. And then throughout the rest of the house, you would have other rooms with other people and they would still get food and drink, but it might be less or, or less extravagant or, or less delicious, Right? You would be fed, but it would be different, and it would be clear as to the reasons why it was different, right? Maybe because you didn't make a certain amount of money, or because you didn't dress a certain way, or because you didn't have a certain social standing. And so what Paul is saying to the church in Corinth is that this Corinthian tradition has replaced the Christian tradition. That what was culturally acceptable, what was culturally normal, has so invaded the practice of the church in Corinth that actually what they're practicing is not what they think they're practicing. That's crazy. Paul says, listen, the Lord's Supper among you is unrecognizable, so much so that it is not the Lord's Supper. And so Paul's continuing this argument that we started last week, right? That just like the women of the church should not suffer at the hands of the men in the church, so the poor should not suffer at the hands of the rich in the church. Which is why he goes on to say, look, some of you, some of you go ahead with your own meal. And some of you go hungry. And some of you are getting drunk. what, What is happening here? He says, you have houses in which you can throw your parties and you can have your meals and you can do whatever you got to do. But when you come into the gathering of the church, you better not behave in such a way that communicates, in fact, that not, not only do you not love the church or God, but that you, in fact, despise the church of God and that you show that despising through your humiliation of your brothers and sisters. And so he says, I can't commend you in that. I can't honor that. And so what does he go on to say? Well, in verse 23, he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what is the Lord's Supper at its core? Well, it's this spiritual and mysteriously sustaining sacrament that calls 
the body of Christ, it calls this fellowship of believers to remember both in their body and in their spirit that God has initiated a new covenant. That God no longer regards His people according to their ability to fulfill the law, but rather according to the fulfillment of the law by Jesus Himself. And this new covenant makes makes this a fact. This new covenant makes it a fact that every person that enters into that new covenant is equally needy. It does not matter if you are male or if you are female, if you are a Jew or if you are a Greek, or if you are rich or if you are poor, or if you are a free or if you are slave. You need a broken body on your behalf and shed blood on your behalf. And Jesus is the one who has offered it for you. And so what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be is this intense, glorious, foreshadowing moment in which the distinct and different peoples of the church in Corinth together say, we are equal. What was meant to be an equalizing sacrament, what was meant to equally humble and equally uplift, is being used in Corinth to further classify people according to their social distinctions. And that, brothers and sisters, is an abomination. It's an abomination to Paul, and ultimately, to Christ, which is what we will see as we continue reading. Verse 27 says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, there's a lot that we could take out of that and a lot that I think is appropriate to take out of that. But in light of today's larger theme, I want to approach it in a way that I think maybe some of us have not read this before. What is it that Paul is saying in those verses? Well, well, clearly what we come to find out is that this meal... This meal that we partake of together is important. It's very, very important. And that's why Paul says that anyone who partakes in an unworthy manner is guilty. Now, I want us to notice something, right? He says anyone who partakes. So here's, here's the assumption Paul is making. He's, he's assuming that if you come to the table, right, you are a follower of Jesus. We've been offered, we've been extended this table, and yet there is a way that we can take it that makes us guilty. What is that way? He'll go on to tell us in just a few verses. But he says that anyone who partakes in an unworthy manner is guilty concerning Christ's body and blood. He's saying that to mistreat, to misrepresent, or to mistake the significance of this meal is that grave. That we actually heap 
guilt upon the body and blood of Christ. We actually make Jesus' death and his shedding of his blood more necessary by the way we treat this table. That it's that significant. And so he says, listen, Christians, brothers and sisters who are coming to the table, we should examine ourselves to be sure that we're taking this meal in the spirit that it's meant to be taken in. And because the meal is a communal and equalizing force in the church, it must be taken with consideration for the body. This body. That means if we come to this table with no consideration for one another, if there is not a communal aspect to this meal together, if there's not a communal understanding, if there are not communal ties that have been rectified, if we come to this table saying that we're one with one another while we are actively slandering or speaking against one another, brothers and sisters, that is to come to this table in an unworthy manner. And that is serious, Paul says. Because when we don't, when we don't consider not only our individual relationship with God when we come to the table, but our, individ- our, our relationship with the people of God. When we don't consider those things, when we don't examine ourselves, then brothers and sisters, we eat and we drink in an unworthy manner. And that is sin, which is why Paul says this next in verses 30 through 32, some of the more concerning verses in this passage. It says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And what is Paul saying here? Again, we could talk a lot just about this set of verses, and if you have questions, I'd love to talk more afterwards. But essentially what Paul is saying is this, look, there's real world consequences for sin, right? We know that. We know there's real-life consequences for sin. Some of that is illness. Some of that is death, right? That's why the world is as it is right now. And Paul says, though, that those consequences, for those of us who are believers in Christ, for those of us who claim to follow Christ, that those consequences among us are not so that we might be led into despair and doubt, but rather so that we might be disciplined, right? So that we might not be condemned in the end, right? So when God makes us aware of these painful things, these painful realities, be it through spiritual suffering or even physical suffering, that is done with the intent that we might repent and believe in Christ. That is done with the intent that we might be more and more like Jesus. That is done with the intent that we might be disciplined as disciples. And so Paul concludes with this in verse 33. He says, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if you've got an ESV, you'll see a little 12 next to it. That's because you could also translate that as share with one another or welcome one another, right? Again, this is Paul saying that this is a communal thing that we share with one another. It's worth waiting for one another. It's worth waiting for the congregation to come in, for the congregation to be whole, and to share this meal in like circumstance, in like ways, so that we might experience God's grace together and so that we might display God's grace together. 
And so he says in verse 34, if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. What is he saying? The primary purpose, brothers and sisters, of this meal is not to satisfy hunger in a real and bodily sense. It is to satisfy hunger in a real and spiritual sense. And brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I am hungry for a relationship with the Creator God that has now been extended to me in this meal, that relationship. And I am hungry for communion with my fellow humans. I am hungry for communion with the people of God, the body of Christ. And in this sacrament, not only do I proclaim that reality, but I receive it as truth. If, if I've approached it in a worthy manner. And then, of course, there's that awesome line about the other things I will give directions when I come. So maybe there's some stuff that's really important that we're missing, but, um, you know, hey, we're doing our best. So. All right. So we should have a pretty, pretty clear picture of what it is that Paul is trying to say, right, in these, in these few verses here at the uh, latter half of chapter 11. What, what do we need to take away from this? Right? Beyond the fact that this is important, that we should approach it that way, that this has real and meaningful bearing on not only what we say our relationships should look like, meaning we're one because we partake of one table, but in the ways that our relationships should actually look, like that we should be in fact one, that we should not proclaim that we're united and come to the table divided and be hip- hypocrites. Beyond those things, what, what's, what's the application? Well, I think there's a few things, and I've really got just three, three things I would want us to take from this as we prepare to come to the table and as we continue in our understanding of what it means for us as a body, a congregation, a fellowship of believers to come every week, week by week, to this table. The first is this, the supper is a symbol The supper is a symbol, right? Paul makes it clear here, and Jesus' own words make it clear that this is a constant reminder and a physical act in which we break bread or flesh and we pour wine or blood to keep ever before us the memory of our sacrificial Savior. It's symbolic in that regard. By it, we remember what it took for us to be brought into the family of God, right? We've talked at great length over the past several weeks, maybe seven or eight now, about this idea that lives that lack sacrifice lack love. Well, brothers and sisters, here we have the clearest image of sacrifice put on display for us week after week after week, and we are to be disciples of that sacrifice. Right? By it, we remember that the feast we'll enjoy in glory was bought at the price of the death of Son of God Himself. And by it, we remember that Jesus' one sacrifice, Jesus' one sacrifice, one perfect life lived, one spotless, sinless Lamb was perfectly pleasing, perfectly acceptable to God, 
once and for all. And so we don't have to recreate a different sacrifice. We don't, we don't have to make a new ritual. We only need to return to that which points us to the final sacrifice and ritual. The one that Jesus completed when he screamed from the cross, it is finished. So the supper is a symbol. The supper is also a mystery. Let me explain a little bit what I mean by that. There's a lot of debate as to what actually happens. Like what happens when we come and we put the bread in our mouths and we drink the cup. There's lots of Christians, in fact, throughout time that have divided over that issue, right? Some people believe this, at some point, becomes the real physical body and the real physical blood of Jesus somehow, spiritually, and that that's what we partake of. And so we can't spill it, we can't drop it, because we would not want to profane or degrade the sacrament. We wouldn't want to spill Jesus' actual blood. Now, while I appreciate the reverence for this moment and what's happening here, and, and while I feel like we could gravitate closer to that, I don't think that we could really say that to be true. And we can have that debate another time. I'd love to talk to you more about it. But I think what we can do, and I think what we can honestly say, and what we can with good conscience say, is that there is more at work here than just eating a piece of stale pita and some like six-week-old box wine. That there's more going on there. It's a place where symbolism is met with some measure of true, actual, and sustaining grace from God Himself. Like that He meets us here every week and He applies His blood anew to our sins. You see, the church is called to keep our Lord Jesus, His death, His resurrection as the focal point of our worship. Not just of our worship, but of our witness, our service, and our mission, right? Jesus didn't think that Christ-centered preaching would be enough. Did you hear that? Because what I just said, I think in some circles might be considered heresy. Jesus didn't think that gospel-centered sermons would be enough. That's why he left his church not only a gospel to preach, but rites, rites of water, baptism, bread and wine, to eat and to drink, to practice these things so that we might be bolstered not only in our hearing, but in our seeing and in our tasting and in our, our body, our reality. Know and understand that death and that resurrection. You see, brothers and sisters, it gets harder to forget Christ and His cross when we proclaim His death in the breaking of bread at the climax of every week's worship. It gets really hard to do that. When the sign seals the word, well, then the church becomes a communion. 
And the church becomes a communion of martyrs ready to bear the cross because they've consumed the cross. That's why it's important that we do it every week. Brothers and sisters, these are the guardrails for you this morning. I can get up and say all kinds of outlandish garbage, and at the end of the day, if we partake of the sacrament that proclaims the life of Jesus, His substitutionary death, and His victorious resurrection on our behalf, brothers and sisters, we'll be sustained. The Lord will have met us. And listen, I don't, I don't ever plan on there being a day where anyone who takes this pulpit um, over my dead body will come up here and proclaim to you another gospel. But listen, where our points may be inaccurate, where our words might not be clear, where we might say something we didn't into, intend to say, where we might in our fallible nature say something that is in fact fallible, which is altogether possible. Brothers and sisters, this is not those things. And so it is wonderful, it is a wonderful comfort to me, and it should be a wonderful comfort to you, brothers and sisters, that every week after the delivering of the Word, we come and taste what is true and what is good and what is right and what is perfect and what is wonderful and what is glorious and what is communal. Because sharing the supper in some mysterious way forges us into a corporate body that participates in Christ through the Spirit. And by the Spirit, we become what we receive. We are one body because we partake of one loaf, one bread. So the supper is a symbol, the supper is a mystery, but the supper is also a proclamation. Both in the food we share and in the people we share it with, right? We've talked about what it's proclaiming. It's proclaiming the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, right? But it also says something in that we take it with certain kinds of people. Namely, anyone who is called upon the name of Christ for salvation. By doing this, brothers and sisters, we proclaim that salvation is present here in the church which gathers to eat and drink. The gathered church is participating in a communal form of salvation, and the focal point of the church's gathering is here at the Lord's table. And what happens when we do this, brothers and sisters, when we do this same thing every week, is we actually see the world as it was intended to be. A world filled with diverse peoples, filled with different people, right? Different people from different places with different cultural understandings of what it means to be human, right? Different, like everything different. And yet in our differences, God has united us not only to Himself, but to one another and... It is so that we might not only enjoy His glory and revel in it, but so that we as His gathered, diverse, distinct peoples might in our diversity and distinctness, yet our unity, display God's glory to the world around us.
We see the world as it will be one day, where we joyfully, as a society of men and women, will commune with God by sharing the gifts of creation. So listen, I know a lot of us look around the world and we go, man, I, I, you know, is there a, such a thing as a creation mulligan? You know, or is it, you know, uh, as easy as a video game? Like, do I just go to the store and buy more lives? Like, how does it, you know, how can I, just a do-over, man. Like the Etch-A-Sketch, just shake it hard enough and we can start over. Brothers and sisters, you want to see the world renewed? Like the, the renovation of the world. Look for a group of Christians sharing bread and wine. And there you will see the beginning the foretaste of humanity's return to Eden's tree of life. And this is what makes weekly communion so momentous because where Christians gather together to eat and drink, salvation has come to town. That's what we're saying this morning. As we come to the table together, salvation has come to town in the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, and it has real-world implications for how we relate not only to God but to one another, and it is a foretaste, a foreshadowing of the glorious future that will be in the new heavens and the new earth, the new city, where peace, love, justice all reign in the person and the work of Jesus as His glory is revealed throughout all creation from one end of the universe to the next. Brothers and sisters, when we invite our unbelieving neighbors, that is what we are inviting them to behold. And that is what we are inviting them to partake in. The invitation of Jesus is clear. We can come to this table and we can drink without price. Because at the table itself is the image of the price that was already paid. Let's come and enjoy it together now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to be together. Again, God, I pray that you would continually shape and reshape what that phrase means for us to be together. Because, Lord, we're not just together because we're sharing some smelly green seats. We're not just together because we've spent an hour together this morning. Lord, we are together because you sent your son to live lives that we couldn't live, to live perfectly, and yet to die as though he had sinned. 
And it was in that substitutionary death, Lord, that we not only joined in the payment of sin, joined in freedom of the victory of your resurrection. And so, Lord, we, we know that you are forming us into a people. And we pray, Lord, that this meal might not only be a sign of that future reality, but might in some mysterious and glorious way begin even now to propagate that reality in the present. And may you be glorified as it takes place. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.